Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in today's episode I'm joined by the author behind the best-selling teen spy series, Alex Ryder. He's also the creator and writer of some of the nation's best-loved TV series, including Foyle's War and Midsummer Murders, and he has written two Sherlock Holmes novels as well as a James Bond novel. He's here to talk about his latest book, The Word is Murder, which is the first in a new series of crime novels. He's Anthony Horowitz. Anthony, welcome. Hello, Connie. It's great to have you here, and it's great that Anthony has also brought along a number of objects that have shaped and inspired his writing and we're very much looking forward to hearing the stories behind his selection so anthony in this book the word is murder you blend fact and fiction and you put yourself at the center of the investigation as you form a not always harmonious partnership with disgraced detective daniel hawthorne to write about and solve a very mysterious murder it's a very unique way of writing how did you come up with this well um my publishers have been going on at me for some time to try and write a detective series because these days in publishing, I think it is much easier if an author is associated with a character. I mean, it worked for Alex Ryder for all those years. But since then, as you said in your kind introduction, I have been a little bit peripatetic. I began to think about, you know, a detective and a sidekick, but but there's a big side of me that rebels at doing anything too ordinary, too expected. And the idea of just coming up with somebody who was, I don't know, old or young, ill or healthy, drunk Mm. or not drunk, and and a sidekick and the two of them going off book after book and solving crimes, etc., it sort of, it just didn't really appeal. And I I began to think, how can I do something different? What can I do to the sort of whodunit format that will change things and break the rules and give readers an added dimension, Elements, an added yeah. element? That's mm. right. I began to think about the relationship of three main characters in a detective novel are, if it's Sherlock Holmes, mm. it's, it's uh, Arthur Conan Doyle who sits on top of the hill controlling everything. There's Sherlock Holmes, who is the main character and the focus of our interest. And there's poor old Dr Watson, who is sort of a minor character. We know very little about him, but nonetheless, it's his voice and he he is, as it were, the motor, the narrator of the book. Mm. And I began to think about that sort of relationship. And I thought, well, what would happen if the author came off the hill and replaced the sidekick? In other words, if, if I become the sidekick to my character mm. and therefore I'm no longer omnipotent. On the contrary, I'm ignorant. I'm stuck in the valley, desperately following my detective around, trying to work out a murder mystery, which at the same time I'm writing. And that idea just made me smile. I mean, I, I saw immediately there were all sorts of traps that I could fall into if I if I start blowing my own trumpet, if I make myself seem cleverer than I really am, if I use the book to settle scores, that sort of thing. But then I thought to myself, well, hold on. The sidekick is is not an important character, really. He mm. is the sidekick. And that's my role in the book. I'm sort of there, but it, the book is about Daniel Hawthorne. Yes, so you fuse the man on the hill, as it were, and the sidekick together. That's right. And that's you. What's fun about the book is that I'm so hopeless in it. I'm so clumsy. I make terrible mistakes. I'm <laughs> responsible for all sorts of destructiveness that goes on. And, it's and sort of was... a bit like gonzo journalism. You, <laughs> you sort of make the end game, a different end game by being in the book. It's delightful at the same time to mm. be to be writing the clues and not noticing them. It's sort of just fun. And that, to me, after all these years and so many different books, I think this one is my 46th or 47th novel, to still be able to smile and say, wow, this is fun and this is different and no one has done this before, really, really matters to me. And was it easy or hard to write your stuff? Because you're writing you as a character in your own book. So have you stayed true to yourself or have you changed who you are to some extent? It's not easy. When you ask, is it me? Well, 
yes, it is me. I mean, it is 100% me, but it's me as a writer. So I'm not taking readers into my life. You know, mm. my wife does make an appearance in the book, mm-hmm. but I say very little about her, which I think knowing my wife was the wise thing to do. But <laughs> And my children yeah. appear and Foyle's War gets a mention. And some of the people that I have worked with, uh, the book is set in uh, 2012 or 13, I think. So it's the people I was working with then yeah. are mentioned in it. But... It is me as a writer rather than me as a human being. We will come on to the fact and fiction blur a bit later. But first up, we've got the audiobook of The Word is Murder here and we're going to hear part of it now. In this extract from the opening of the novel, a lady called Diana Cooper is paying a visit to a funeral parlour. The audiobook is read by the magnificent Rory Kinnear. The funeral is your own, he began. Yes. Suddenly Mrs Cooper was brisk wanting to get straight to the point. I have already given some consideration to the details. I take it you have no problem with that. On the contrary, individual requirements are important to us. These days, pre-planned funerals and what you might call bespoke or themed funerals are very much the mainstay of our business. It is our privilege to provide exactly what our clients demand. After our discussion here, and assuming our terms are acceptable to you, we will provide you with a full invoice and breakdown of what has been agreed. Your relatives and friends will have nothing to do except, of course, to attend. And from our experience, I can assure you that it will give them great comfort to know that everything has been done exactly in accordance with your wishes. Mrs Cooper nodded. Excellent. Well, let's get down to it, shall we? She took a breath, then dived straight in. I want to be buried in a cardboard coffin. Cornwallis was about to make his first note. He paused the nib hovering over the page. If you are considering an eco-funeral, might I suggest recycled wood or even twisted willow branches rather than cardboard? There are occasions when cardboard can be not entirely effective. He chose his words carefully, allowing all sorts of possibilities to hang in the air. Willow is hardly more expensive and a great deal more attractive. All right. I want to be buried in Brompton Cemetery next to my husband. You lost him recently? Twelve years ago. We already have the plot, so there'll be no problems there. And this is what I want in the service. She opened her handbag and took out a sheet of paper, which she laid on the desk. The funeral director glanced down. I see that you have already put a great deal of thought into the matter, he said. And this is a very well-considered service, if I may say so. Partly religious, partly humanist. Well, there's a psalm and there's the Beatles. A poem, a bit of classical music, and a couple of addresses. Don't want the thing going on too long. We can work out the timings exactly. Diana Cooper had planned her funeral, and she was going to need it. She was murdered about six hours later that same day. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I I always am intrigued. Do you get a choice of who reads your books? On the audiobook, do you have to audition? Do you listen to different voices or do you trust someone else? Well, if Rory Kinnear says he's going to read your book, you don't need to this is, audition this or is listen true. to any other voices. I was absolutely thrilled. And incidentally, I've not heard it yet. I ah. have a copy, but I haven't had a chance to play it. Doesn't he do it so he's, well? He's he brilliant. The publishers asked me, they draw up a dream list. In this case, he was the number one name on it. And you go to brilliant. the actor and you hope for the best. And you get your number one name. If you're lucky. So you've brought in a number of objects and your first object is Tintin's Rockets. Yes, I'm holding... This, is the, this isn't the smallest one. This is a sort of medium-sized Tintin Rocket. 
It's enormously iconic, isn't it? I mean, even if yeah. you haven't read Tintin, you sort of know this shape, the red and white mm. colouring of it and the sort of lovely sort of 40s or 50s look of it. This sits in my office. It's in my eyesight all the time when I'm writing. And Tintin, of course, is where my career began. When I was a very, very young boy at school and not a very happy school and not a very successful child, my first great love in reading, I wasn't clever enough to read proper books, you know, full of words, mm. but I adored Tintin. This is me about age eight, nine. And Tintin is a writer and he has all these wonderful friends and he goes to amazing places, including, of course, the moon. And I wanted to be like him. It's one of the reasons Aww. I became a writer and to have friends like his, you know, Captain Haddock and Snowy and the Thompsons and Cuthbert Cockhill, all these different people. The world that Hergé created was a much happier world than the one I was living in. And Tintin has inspired me ever since. I mean, particularly this rocket, which represents sort of exploration and travel and distances, all of which can be applied to writing mm. uh, as well as, you know, to space travel. Yeah, adventures. Adventure, absolutely, yeah. adventures in a word. Mm. So was it reading Tintin's books then and there at age eight or nine or whatever, was that the beginning of you knowing you wanted to be a writer? Yes, it was confirmation that I would be a writer. I was going to be like him. There could be no doubt about it. You know, the Tintin books have influenced me in other ways too. They're full of secret passages. Nobody created a secret passage better than Hergé. I mean, in Cigars of Pharaoh, there's a, a tree trunk that opens with a secret door and inside the tree is a spiral staircase going down into the ground. And that's how I've always seen the world. When I was a small boy, again, being dragged around really boring museums or yeah. stately homes by my parents, I was always tapping the wood panels waiting to find which one would open and would take me into yeah. the secret passage. But again, when I got into bed, I, I was always thinking to myself that if I just looked hard enough, I would find the trapdoor in the floor that would take yeah. me out of Stanmore, North London, which is where I was living, and into some kind of fantasy land. And I think in a funny sort of way that my stories are just that, but a lot of what I write are sort of secret ways of escaping from reality. I actually now have a sort of secret door in my house. It was absolutely vital to me that really? I should reach my office every day through a secret door. Where is it? Or would that if, be telling? Well, it's obviously a secret, but <laughs> no, I mean, it's been seen often enough uh, in, in different Behind places. Behind a bookcase? It's a bookcase, yes. It's, it? a, it's oh, a huge bookcase that swings open and there's a sort of... Behind it, there's a cabinet of curiosities where at least one of the objects we're going to talk about today came from and there's a staircase that leads upstairs to my office. Because you mentioned in your book, because you have been working on the uh, Tintin film adaptation. Well, I was some years ago. Yes, that, when uh, the book was written. That's right, So 2014. Yes. And that was a Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson project. And you mention, and I was just very interested, that Peter Jackson has a secret Peter, case. Peter Jackson has the most amazing house. secret passage I've ever seen. Apparently one of his houses has a secret passage that goes under the garden and comes up in a hobbit a complete no. reconstruction of a hobbit house, which would be amazing. But when I was with him in New Zealand, he took me along a corridor, a long corridor in his film studio, and halfway down is a stationery cupboard. And it's just a straightforward, ordinary stationery cupboard full of envelopes and what you'd expect to find. But you press the button... And the back swings open on hydraulics and it takes you into the most awesome office, which is where he works. I loved working with Peter. I found him the most impressive man and the most genial, incidentally, for somebody who is, you know, so successful and so powerful in the world of film. Utterly genial, delightful. But anybody who has an office behind a secret passage <laughs> couldn't be anything but. It is intriguing stuff, but let's go and have our adventures again and hear another extract from the audiobook of The Word is Murder and 
And here, Anthony has just met Daniel Hawthorne, who has a proposition for him. The waitress arrived with my cake and tea, but now I wished I hadn't ordered them. I just wanted to get home. Why do you think anyone would want to read about you? I asked. I'm a detective. People like reading about detectives. But you're not a proper detective. You got fired. Why did you get fired, by the way? I don't want to talk about that. Well, if I was going to write about you, you'd have to tell me. I'd have to know where you live, whether you're married or not, what you have for breakfast, what you do on your day off. That's why people read murder stories. Is that what you think? Yes. He shook his head. I don't agree. The word is murder. That's what matters. Look, I'm really sorry. I tried to break it gently. It's a good idea, and I'm sure you've got a really interesting case, but I'm afraid I'm far too busy. <laughs> anyway, it's not what I do. I write about fictional detectives. I've just finished a story about Sherlock Holmes. I used to do Poirot and Midsummer Murders. I'm a fiction writer. You need someone who writes true crime. What's the difference? All the difference in the world. I'm in control of my stories. I like to know what I'm writing about. Creating the crimes and the clues and all the rest of it is half the fun. If I were to follow you around, just writing down what you saw and what you said, what would that make me? I'm sorry, I'm not interested. He glanced at me over the tip of his cigarette. He didn't look surprised or offended, as if he'd known that was what I was going to say. I reckon you could sell a ton of copies, he remarked. And it'd be easy for you. I'll tell you everything you need to know. Don't you want to hear what I'm working on? I didn't, but he went on before I could stop him. A woman walks into a funeral parlour, just the other side of London, in South Kensington. She's arranged her own funeral, right down to the last detail. And that same day, six hours later, someone murders her. Goes into her house and strangles her. It's a bit unusual, wouldn't you say? Who was she? I asked. Her name doesn't matter just for now. But she was rich. She's got a famous son. And here's another thing. As far as we can see, she didn't have an enemy in the world. Everybody liked her. That's why I got called in. None of it makes any sense. For a brief moment, I was tempted. I've not heard that before, Connie, and you have no idea how weird it is to hear Rory Kinnear talking as me. And when you think about it, I'm now talking about Rory talking as me. I mean, it's completely <laughs> doing my head in, but yeah. still, a it, very strange experience. It's true. Rory's essentially acting you by sort reading of. your yeah, book I mean, in which you've written you as a character. But it's, here I am sort of now talking about the book as yeah. well as I was in that extract. It's so strange. It's very strange and very original and unique. And I have to say, that was part of, I think, what drew me into the book so much. The whole time I was like, I wonder where the reality ends and where the truth begins. And I have to ask you, is Hawthorne based on a real person? Well, a lot of what I write in the book is true. I mean, for example, the thoughts there you heard about why I wouldn't want to write a yes. book like this because I like the fun. I mean, in this talk with you, I've used the word fun quite a few times, and mm. that is important to me. And it's absolutely true that the greatest fun I have is thinking up the stories, which is why I would turn him down. So that bit of it is true. Uh, how I met Hawthorne, in inverted commas, well, no. I mean, I do meet detectives, and there are detectives like Hawthorne who are out there helping us. In fact, when I was writing this book, uh, I credit in the back a detective, an ex-detective, right. who gave me a lot of interesting and useful information about the police. He's sort of more based on... There was a character called Wenborn who I wrote in a series called Injustice, which I do talk about in the book as well. Mm. Um, and Wenborn. 
I made a huge mistake with him. I killed him at the end of episode four. And he was such a great character, but I always wanted to bring him back. And to an extent, I have done so by renaming him as Hawthorne and right. giving him some of the same traits. It's, it's all very confusing. Maybe I need, rather than doing this tape, to be talking to a sort of psychoanalyst. But, um, <laughs> Maybe uh, this rather is this some recording. sort of therapy by doing this. Well, <laughs> I, hope, I, I hope it'll do me some good. Yes, I certainly need help in some way. So... The, the actual character is based on Wemborn, but then a lot of what he says is based on the guy that you credit in the back. Is that right? I think the truth is, is that Hawthorne, he's partly Wemborn. He's many people that I have met in my time, and he's partly Charlie Creed Miles, the actor who played who played Wemborn on the television show. Yeah. I'm not sure where he came from, and he's not even fully there yet. As I write him, I will find out more well, about him. it's funny you should say that, because... You get to near the end of the book and your character or you or <laughs> the narrator realises that actually you don't know that much about Hawthorne. So it'll be interesting to see him evolve through the books but, to come. But that's what happens when you write a long-term character. Alex Ryder, over the 10 or 11 books I wrote about him, became a much sort of darker, more fully thought-out character. Foil in the Foil's War series, 26, mm. 27 episodes. He, you know, well, in the hands of Michael Kitchen, of course, he was already pretty fully formed from the start. But nonetheless, there was a deepening and a further understanding understanding of him. That is what happens between a writer and his character. And it's sort of happening here for real in The Word is Murder. Mm, absolutely. Right, so we need to go on to your next object now. And that is... A magic trick. A magic trick. It's sitting here. Oh, and right. I, I, I wondered I will, what that was. I should tell you straight away, I'm afraid, I'm not going to perform this. I do not do <gasps> magic. I just don't like performing magic because I'm no good at it. Oh. I muck it up and I spoil it for myself and everything else. What I love about this is I'm holding in my hands yes. an antique-looking wooden box which has a hole in the top and it has a silver ball protruding out of that hole. It, it opens, and I've now opened it, and this silver ball comes out, and inside is also a piece of glass. Yep. And this trick is obvious, is that you put the piece of glass in here and you close up the, the box, which I've just done, with the ball inside. Sorry, it's got to go in there. And theoretically, the box should be... It should be possible for the ball to pass through the piece of glass and fall out the bottom or something. That is the trick, basically. Why have I brought it along and why do I like it? First of all, I love tricks and illusion in my writing. Murder mystery works because of sleight of hand. I'm pointing one way yes. whilst actually the action is happening somewhere else. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. I love tricks and surprises that if the ball falls through this hole, just as in the funeral chapter of the book when one of the characters is being buried, Diana Cooper, something quite bizarre takes place. So I love the showmanship of magic and I love using some of the techniques of magic. I've actually even written whole books. Moriarty, which was my second Sherlock Holmes novel, mm. the whole mechanism of how the murders work is exactly the same mechanism as a fairly simple card trick. And so magic informs my work in different ways and I use it to inspire me. I collect peculiar old-fashioned magic tricks like this one here. But what I don't do is when people come to dinner say, hey, pick a card. Yeah, it's a good analogy though because... While I was reading, I was thinking, oh, I've sussed this now when you mention something and you're misdirecting me and doing a sleight of hand. And actually, I've totally missed who the murderer is or whatever by going down this dead-end street. Were there certain sort of magic tricks that you had in mind while you were weaving the plot lines together here? No, not a specific trick in The Word is Murder, but certainly some of the techniques... I even say, I think, maybe in Magpie Murders, that the sidekick's role, and this is, of course, my role in this book, is always to misdirect. Whatever a sidekick asks about is probably not worth knowing. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, let's hear again from the audiobook of The Word is Murder. I'm interested you put them in that order. I'll write about you. I'll write about this case, and when you solve it, if you solve it, I'll see if I can get my publisher interested. But I am not going to be bullied by you. This is still my book, and I'm going to be the one who decides what goes into it. His eyes widened. Come down, Tony. I'm just trying to help. This is the agreement that we made. I wouldn't show Hawthorne any more of the book, certainly not while I was writing it, and probably not even after it was finished. I would write what I wanted to write, and if that meant criticising him or adding thoughts of my own, I would simply go ahead. But when it came to the scene of the crime, the interrogations or whatever, I would stick to the facts. I wouldn't imagine, extrapolate or embroider the text with potentially misleading descriptions. As for chapter one, forget the bell and the Mont Blanc pen. Diana Cooper had lunch with Raymond Clunes, and Andrea Kluvanek may not have been telling the truth. But be assured that the rest of it, including a clue which would indicate quite clearly the identity of the killer, is spot on. Now, I looked at the acknowledgements in the back of the book. In fact, this whole book is a whole new experience because all the way through reading, I was Googling, mm, does he have two sons and a wife? It's the added element. It's fascinating. Is the actual murder based on a real murder? No, that is my invention. Right. Uh, of course, the whodunit elements and all the, the murder mystery elements I have... Of course, created. Well, Diana Cooper. Diana Cooper is based on a close friend of mine. She is, in fact, the mother of a very famous actor, and I didn't copy her onto the page, but she might recognise some aspects of herself. She doesn't know, then. (laughs) She does know, and I'm speaking a little carefully because it's always dangerous putting people in books. I don't want to offend anybody. It's more of a thought process. I mean, like in that little extract we just heard of me coming to that arrangement with Hawthorne about how the book could be written. You know, that is me writing about the writing process, and that's what sort of I think is fascinating about it. Uh, I show him in the book an early draft, and he tears it apart because I've put in extraneous details that actually will prevent him from solving the crime, you know, because it changes yes, things. Yes, yes. So it does bring you back down to the exoskeleton yeah. of writing a book. And that to me is, is what what is the challenge of it. That's right, because he doesn't like the the clock detail of the funeral directors. Yeah, or the bell on the, the door. Bell, it's a bell it. on the yes, door yes, because, if, right, because yes. if there was a bell on the door, I say there's an old-fashioned bell on the door of the um, undertakers because to a writer that says it's a very shorthand way of saying this is an old-fashioned business. So yeah. I invent a bell on the door. But then he points out that if there were a bell that clanged every time the door was open, then if... Diana Cooper had been followed into The Undertaker, they would have known because they'd have heard somebody ring the bell. So he says, when you rewrite the book, take out the bell because it changes things. Yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? It's such an odd dynamic. Seeing you smile and, and you know, and, and thank you for smiling tells me that I made the right decision. And when Absolutely. going back yeah, to the beginning totally. of this process of writing this book, you know, I didn't want to do a bog standard who done it? There are lots out there in the market. Some of them are brilliant. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking other people's work. But for me, having written so many books, I wanted this to be something different. really different. And yeah. it really is. Right, we're going to move on to your next object now, which is a fountain pen. Yes, I have this in front of me again here. I could have chosen one of about a dozen fountain pens. And if I have a sort of an affectation or a weakness in my life, it is for buying fountain pens. But then at the same time, as a writer, it's all I need. The one I'm holding in my hand is a Mont Blanc, not incidentally my favourite brand. I find them a tiny, this pen anyway, a little bit scratchy. This may sound pretentious. I like the fountain pen to reflect the book I'm writing. 
the look of the pen, the feel of it and the weight of it somehow informs the writing because it is a sort of a very intimate process. Sitting on my own for a lot of hours a day in silence by myself, I tend to always do the first draft of my books by pen Partly because, really? I, yeah, I like the intimacy of it. I like not having technology between me and the page, but it's also emulating my great heroes, like Charles Dickens, for example, who did not have typewriters or computers, but had a pen and paper. And although I know I don't write anywhere near as well as them, writing like them sort of inspires me and sort of makes me feel I'm part of that family. It's not blood that runs through the veins of writers, it's ink, and this is therefore a proper ink pen. The one I have in front of me, it's not a terribly nice pen. This is... um. It's black and it has him a top. I'm going to pass it over to you yeah. to have a look. You'll notice it's got a tiny diamond, a oh, real yes. diamond in the top, sort of encased in plastic. And it's a real piece of sort of bling. <laughs> but I got this pen at the time when I was writing Russian Roulette, which was one of the last Alex Ryder books. And I was writing about a really horrible oligarch called Sharkovsky. And I thought, what would an oligarch write with if he had a choice? And of course the answer is, it's a pen with a diamond in it. Uh, And so that pen informs him his character. And when I wrote the book, I felt a little bit that I was Sharkovsky just because of that pen. I will add that it's not, you know, that's not a £1,000 pen. It's not even a £500 pen, but it's still a slightly vulgar pen. You still wouldn't get it in Smith's, basically. Precisely. So does every character get a different pen? No, because I've written too many characters and I'd have too many I've now got, I think, about sort of nine or ten pens, and they all suit my moods. So each pen has its place in my heart. I have still in my pocket now the very, very first pen I ever bought myself and this this pen I bought when I had sold my first novel and therefore You've got quite an array of pens this in one, that pocket. This one is another more not but a very early one. Very simple pen just in silver. So do you always have a fountain pen on your person? At least one, yes. Wow. I bet you've got neat handwriting. My handwriting has to be neat because I have to be able to read what I've written afterwards. Well, I mean, do you I mean, type it up or to someone else? Because no, that no, must no. be quite a lengthy process to write every draft in pen and then put it into a computer. It's not a lengthy process because then forget that writers, every writer will do two or three drafts or four right. or five drafts of a book. So the first draft is pen and paper. The second draft is into the laptop. It, of course, goes to my publishers over the internet. So I never send manuscripts in. Mm-hmm. I would say it's normally around about... 70% of my first draft is what is kept. I'll change about 30% on that typewritten, you know, computerised second draft. And how many drafts did The Word is Murder go through? Well, The Word is Murder I wrote very quickly. I was quite surprised how fast I wrote it. I didn't. Normally a book is seven months. This one, for various reasons, had to be done much more quickly and it took me, I think, about five months to write. I did one, two, three, four drafts before it went to the publisher. By which I mean, you know, the pen, then the first computer draft, and then I tinkered with that a bit and, you know, changed paragraphs yeah, in there. And then working with my editor, Selena Walker, who was absolutely brilliant and Who's, so sharp. So bl- She gets a mention yeah, in the book too. Well, you know, because this is a book about writing. You know, some of the comments that she gave me on this book, keep it simple, she said. You know, don't overcomplicate. And, and also guiding me to make sure that there wasn't a single sentence where the Antony in this book... Hawthorne incidentally calls him Tony, which I hate. But the Anthony in this book never can come across as, I don't know, pompous or, you know, too full of himself, whatever. And there's occasional moments when a little vanity may have crept in. She was very quick to make sure she it was re- you removed. <laughs> well, the plot thickens in this next extract from the audiobook of The Word is Murder. I could have gone home right then. I could have forgotten the whole thing. And given what happened later on, It might have been better if I had. But I had just left the murder scene. It was almost as if I knew Diana Cooper, and for some reason, 
maybe it was the photographs I had seen, the violence of her death, I felt I owed her something. I wanted to know more. All right, I said. I put down my pen. Show me. The page contained a screenshot of the text that Diana Cooper had sent to her son just before she died. I have seen the boy who was lacerated, and I'm afraid. What do you make of that? he asked. She was interrupted before she finished, I said. There's no full stop. She didn't have time to say what she was afraid of. Or maybe she was just afraid. Maybe she was too afraid to worry about the full stop at the end of the sentence. Meadows was right, it doesn't make any sense. Then maybe this will help. Hawthorne pulled out three more pages, copies of newspaper articles written ten years before. Daily Mail, Friday 8th of June 2001. Twin boy killed in hit-and-run horror. His brother is in critical condition, but doctors say he will recover. An eight-year-old boy was fighting for his life and his twin brother was killed by a short-sighted motorist who ploughed into both children before driving off. Jeremy Godwin was left with injuries which include a fractured skull and a severe laceration of the brain. His brother, Timothy, died instantly. The accident took place at half-past four on Thursday afternoon on the Marine in the coastal resort of Deal, Kent. The two boys, who have been described as inseparable, were returning to their hotel with their nanny, 25-year-old Mary O'Brien. She told the police, the car came round the corner, the driver didn't even try to slow down, she hit the children and drove straight off. I've been with the family for three years and I'm devastated. I couldn't believe she didn't stop. Police have arrested a 52-year-old woman. Ah, again, every audio extract is a cliffhanger. Right, so your next object, I believe, is that the River Thames? It is the River Thames. It is a photograph of the River Thames. I, if I had chosen the photograph myself, it wouldn't have been this one, which shows the Millennium Wheel. Nothing, mm. no, nothing against the Millennium Wheel uh, and a bright, sunny sky. I love the River Thames for its more gloomy quality, its mm. darker side. And although I don't think it actually appears in the word is murder, it has appeared over and over again in my books. I was just thinking as that last extract was playing with Diamond Brothers books where there's a barge moored on the River Thames which has a secret passage going out of the bottom of it through the water and into a tube station, which I rather loved. <laughs> and Alex Ryder has lots of action sequences on mm. the river. The grisliest murder in The House of Silk takes place beside the River Thames. And there's a nice chase in the only historical book I ever wrote for Devil and His Boy. The River Thames freezes over and there's a sort of chase on the ice crossing the river. And I use it in my work. I walk. I have a dog, a Battersea Rescue dog, and we walk together often up and down the river. To me, it's like all of London's history and its life and its vitality, its multiculturalism, its trading, its pleasure, its poetry. It's all contained in that extraordinary river. And I've lived near it pretty much all my life. Well, North London when I was young. But, mm. but I've always been brought back to it. And somehow just being there near it and looking at it energises me. You live in Crete half of the time, right? Well, no, I don't or live in Crete half the time, but I, I rent a place um, near Agus Nicolaus and I have sea views there. And incidentally, water views are very valuable to a writer. Well, I, I read it years ago. I read a sort of, I think, a medical journal that explained that water never stops 
moving. Water sparkles in the light and the wind blows it and there are little waves and ripples. So it's constantly moving. And this apparently, I've forgotten what it does, but it, it stimulates something in your brain. That Your brain has to keep working if you look at water. It has to keep re-evaluating what it's looking That's at. That's where I've gone wrong. Well, <laughs> look at water, water. Look at water. And I find it just keeps me... Energized. So where are you along the Thames when you're in the UK? In well, now I live in Clerkenwell. Right. And Clerkenwell, okay. I don't, in the I don't have a river view, sadly, but I am only a 10-minute walk from the river. And as I say, Boss and me, the dog and I, tend to go out and walk beside the river pretty much every day. When I'm sort of in that reflective mode, you know, I've finished a chapter and I'm thinking of what the next chapter's going to be or even what the next book is going to be, where the plot is going to come from, mm. I find that just walking along the River Thames for six hours or so will do it, do the job. Do you ever get writer's block? No, I don't believe in writer's block. I mean, occasionally I don't have an answer to a problem. Mm. I'm working at the moment on a new James Bond novel, and although I have a title and I have some of the characters and I have some of the main pieces of action, I'm missing, and it's been missing now for about six weeks, a sort of a shape to the book, the actual sort of construction, the way the characters interrelate and how they meet and how how they betray each other, what actually happens with them. And so you could say, I suppose, that I'm blocked on that, but I'm not because I'm just sort of waiting for it to come and it will yeah. come in its own mind. I don't ever sit in a room staring at a sheet of paper and feeling sort of, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to write this book. No, Things you've, take you've their got time. the disjointed elements and you're just going to knit them together. That's right. Which is, yeah, different from writer's block. Well, thus far you've had huge success. The Alex Ryder series has sold nearly 20 million copies worldwide. When you started out, did you ever sort of anticipate this kind of success? Did I think when I started writing, I was published for the first time when I was 21, 22, that I was going to be in inverted commas, a famous writer or a successful writer. No, I, I didn't. And even now, I still feel that I haven't actually achieved what I set out to achieve, uh, or what I hoped for. Every writer... 100 million copies, not no, 20. No, 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 no it's, not, it's not quite like that. No, but you're, no, no, you're not far off wrong. I mean, I've always said that writers are a little bit like arsonists. You know, you write a page or you sell one book and you've struck a match. But that's not enough. You actually want to set fire to a newspaper and hold it up like a sort of a blazing torch. But that's still not enough. So because you're an arsonist, because you've got this sort of insatiable desire, you want to set fire to the building you're in. And even that won't be enough because you want to set fire to the city and eventually you end up wanting to set fire to the world. And that's how I sort of am in a way. I'm not thinking about copies or sales or or income or recognisability or any of these things. It's just that when I have a story, I want to tell it to as many people as I can. And, and when I say I'm frustrated, I still feel that there are... There's more there are, to be done. There are people who haven't read my books. And, yeah. you know, I want to get out there and, I don't know. But then books live on and on and on. But I don't, and therefore, you know, you want time to see is it. short. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Let's hear now a final extract from The Word is Murder and we're headed to Brompton Cemetery for the funeral of Diana Cooper. I know Brompton Cemetery well. When I was in my twenties, I had a room in a flat just five minutes away, and on a hot summer afternoon, I'd wander in and write there. It was somewhere quiet, away from the dust and the traffic, a world of its own. In fact, it's one of the most impressive cemeteries in London, a member of the so-called Magnificent Seven, with a striking array of Gothic mausoleums and colonnades peopled by stone angels and saints, all of them constructed by the Victorians, partly to celebrate death, but also to keep it in its place. There's a main avenue that runs in a straight line all the way from one end to the other, and walking there on a sunny day, I could easily imagine myself in ancient Rome. 
I would find a bench and sit there with my notebooks, watching the squirrels and the occasional fox, and, on a Saturday afternoon, listening to the distant clamour of the crowd at Stamford Bridge Football Club on the other side of the trees. It's strange how different locations around London have played such a large part in my work. The River Thames is one of them. Brompton Cemetery is most certainly another. It was ten to eleven when Hawthorne and I arrived and made our way between the two red telephone boxes that seemed to stand guard on either side of the main gate. We followed a narrow, twisty path with bollards that could be lowered to allow vehicles, presumably hearses, to come in. A few mourners walked ahead of us. This part of the cemetery was shabbier and more depressing than I remembered. I noticed a headless statue on a plinth. Another greeted us with a severed arm. I took pictures of them with my iPhone. A few pigeons pecked at the grass. We turned a corner and the Brompton Chapel appeared ahead of us, a building that consisted of a perfect circle with two wings. If viewed from above, it would have the same shape as a London Underground sign, vaguely appropriate when you think about it. We had approached it from the back, and, sure enough, there was a hearse parked on a square of concrete next to an open door. The willow casket that Diana Cooper had requested was inside, as, I realised with a jolt in my stomach, was she. That was our final extract, and quite aptly, your final object, which it's now time for, is a skull. So we go from a cemetery to a skull. Uh, yes, it is appropriate, <laughs> isn't it? I've written quite often about this skull... I'm feeling like Hamlet now as it sits in front of me. Um, I was given this by my mother for my 13th, not birthday, for Christmas. That's uh, when an I was 13 years Christmas old. Christmas present. Well, I'd asked for a human skull oh, at that had. time, and I was already quite interested in the brain, in the whole idea of who we are and where we sit and how we think. And of course, when I'm writing, I often think to myself that actually this skull is my capsule. I mean, you know, we began with a Tintin rocket. Everything that I do is comes from my brain, and my brain sits in this extraordinary capsule, which is the human skull. And this human skull opens, so you can actually see inside where the brain is. And, and I'm always aware of that as being my centre of gravity, my centre of life, and everything that I do begins with this. And I keep it also, I suppose, to remind me that time is short that I'm not on this planet for a very long time and that, sadly, I will end up looking like this myself. Mm. And therefore, the skull reminds me to get on with it, to keep working, to keep writing, to keep thinking and not to sort of waste time on YouTube or Twitter or whatever else it is that drags me away from my work. Do you work. get easily distracted when you're working? Ever since I gave up smoking, it's very difficult, and that was 30 years ago, right. it's very difficult to find something, you know, to give yourself a rest. I don't yeah. think you can just write and write no. and write all day. You need to do other things. Yeah. So, yes, Twitter and, and other sorts of stuff, emails and such, do distract me. And then this skull reminds me, no, get off that and get back to work. So it's basically just like having a coffin next to your day. It's showing no, you that you're mortal. Yes, it is. But at the same time, I think of the human skull as a miracle rather yes, than as something right. grotesque or, or, or something sort of, you know, to be afraid of. I sort of revere this object. I have to remind myself, you know, even bringing it into the studio today, which my assistant kindly did, and I'm glad mm. she wasn't arrested on the way over. Who, you know, <laughs> what would a you know, stop and search policeman have said if they'd found a skull in her bag? But even bringing it here is slightly, to my mind, a desecration. Is this this, was, this, is this a was, 
was real a, skull. Yeah, which is, of course is a real so skull. So who did it belong to? So this is some poor person who will have sold their body to science for money probably to feed their family. And when I have this, I always remember that. So, you know, I don't do yeah. stupid things with it. And generally, it doesn't ever leave my office. This was a man or a woman, and it was a life, and it was children, and it was story, and it was love, and emotion, and sadness, and anger. And now it is just this object. But so one day will you be, and so one day will I be, we all will be, and it's worth having that close to me to remember. Very wise words indeed. And on that note, Anthony, what is next for you? Well, um, at the moment, as I've already mentioned, I am thinking up the next James Bond novel. Mm. I'm very excited to have been asked to do a second one by the Ian Fleming estate. I have the title, I have the name of the girl. These are the two hardest things to come up with. I'm not allowed to share them with you because I haven't yet had the authorization from the Fleming estate. They are a scary bunch. I can imagine. Smirsh look like a pushover compared to them. But no, I mean, I'm joking. They're, they're great to work with and it's fair enough that they hear it first. To work with, oh, good heavens, to have yes. Been asked oh, for that, you know, they are amazing. they were related to Ian Fleming. I have yeah. revered Fleming all my life. I'm so thrilled to do another yeah. book of his. Then as soon as that is done, the word is murder is going to be followed by a book called Another Word for Murder, which is a second outing with Hawthorne. If the two books are successful enough, I hope to continue with that as a series. I'm meanwhile adapting Magpie Murders, which is my last book for television. I'm hoping it'll be an eight-part series, of which I've so far written four parts. There are other bits and pieces. Um, Alex Ryder is going to come back again quite soon. Great. A collection of short stories, so I'm busy. You are very busy indeed. Well, we are very happy that you managed to make time to come and chat to us. And it has been absolutely fascinating. We wish you the best of luck with the future projects. Thank you so much. Thank you, Connie.